So it's good to see you all this morning. As you know, if you've been here before, we are studying this summer in the book of Numbers. Who is just like loving the book of Numbers? Anybody besides me? I, I actually have been having a lot of fun with it. Um, it's in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, it's called Sefer Bamidbar, the book of in the wilderness. And that's what it tells the story of their wilderness wanderings that is now in kind of its final stage with this um, kind of culmination of this massive story that started clear back in bondage in Egypt and now that whole exodus generation has wandered through the the, the wilderness for 40 years and and most of those old timers have died off everybody except Moses Joshua and Caleb and now their task is sort of to to do some preparation for how to enter into the land that was promised to them clear back when God told Abraham your family is going to be like numbered like the stars and I'm going to give you a land from which to bear God's image to, to the nations. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. And, and he said, you will mediate my presence to the world from that land that I give you. And it was finally happening. They're, they're about to enter into the land. And part of their preparation for this was working out the distribution of the land. Who gets what land? And their guiding principle in this would be inclusion. And that's kind of what our story is about today. Every family in the tribe should be given their own piece of land. In fact, they do a whole nother census at this point in the book of Numbers so that they can count everybody. They name everybody. And everybody's name is on that list gets a piece of the promised land. And there were even safeguards to make sure that down through the centuries, that ancestral land would stay within their family. So like if they some tragedy would befall them or they fell into debt or they lost their land through bad management or anything really. Their family was like a grandpa, an, an uncle, a cousin, somebody who had some means. They were obligated by Jewish law to redeem it, to buy it back for them. And in the rare cases when that didn't happen, there was jubilee. This Every 50 years, all of the land in Israel would go back to its ancestral family, its rightful owners. So each family was supposed to have their own piece of the land, and its stewardship was a sacred trust to them to cause it to flourish, right? Like their own little garden of Eden. And the guiding principle for the distribution and maintenance of the land would be inclusion. Everybody was to have a piece. And in our text for, day, for today, this problem emerges because there are daughters of this man named um, Zelophad who came to Moses and Eleazar, he's the, the new high priest, and, and said, our father was a good man. He, he was, wasn't part of Korah's rebellion or any of the other trouble, but he died in the wilderness with the rest of his generation, and he died without a son, without a male heir, just these five daughters. And in Jewish law, a father's land was passed through the sons. So in a sense, their family was about to be left out of the promise. And so these daughters came, came to Moses with this issue that they saw as a, as a matter of justice. And he said, why should our father's name be withdrawn from the midst of his clan because he had no son? Give us a holding in the midst of our father's brothers. So they say, give us or grant us um, an ahuzah is the word. It means holding or portion or possession. So they're asking for their own stake in the land. And they come to Moses to act as mediator and take this issue before God, which he does. And God says, they're right. 
we should change the law. Rightly do the daughters of Zelophad speak. You shall surely give them a secure holding in the midst of their father's brothers, and you shall pass on their father's estate to them. It's a really interesting story. These daughters come forward and expose a gap in the laws of the Torah, and it's presented here as a courageous act. They come right to the tent of meeting where the presence of God is, and there's, there's um, this kind of urgency. There's a scenario the laws don't anticipate. And in fact, the law, as it's currently stated, they say will result in a terrible injustice. That's quite a thing to say about a law that was given by God. No family, they said, should lose their land just because women would be owners and stewards of the land. And so what happens is God says, yeah, let's make a change to the, to the law, to the tradition. And you heard Andy read it. They, they adjust all of the inheritance laws toward inclusion so that nobody will be left out of God's blessing. One of the great medieval rabbis, Rashi, he said these women are actually, because it's mentioned really close together, are being held in contrast to the men who were sent into the promised land as spies to spy out the land. Remember those guys? And they came back saying, we cannot take the land. We need to get, get a new leader and head back to Egypt. These women show up saying, Ahuzah, like give us holding in the land. And Rashi says, we should have sent women as spies in the first place. <laughs> if you remember, this is actually the second time in the story they make a correction or change to the law. The first time was around the observance of the Passover. Do you remember that? They, they were like, we have to observe Passover. Sometimes we're, we end up being ritually unclean or we're away on a journey or something. What should we do? And sort of the principle we looked at was this idea that faith evolves over time. It has to or it dies. And part of the reason for this is that our tradition does not exist simply to be analyzed and believed in. It exists to be lived and embodied by people. And if it's lived and embodied, it must be lived and embodied in a particular context, in particular times and places and cultures, offering those cultures wisdom for the right ordering of the world. This is the whole point of what we're doing. That's the essence of our faith. And what this story seems to indicate is that when the context for faith changes, faithful people will have to innovate and adapt their practices in order to continue to play the role that God has asked them to play in the world. And there were just times in scriptures when strict observance of the law ceased to produce the results God was after. Not because the law wasn't good in its original context, but because the context had changed. And the law no longer functioned to produce the results God was after. Jewish law isn't, isn't comprehensive, you know. It's, it doesn't cover every possible situation. God's commands were given in a specific context. And when that context changes, it requires divine wisdom to discern how the tradition itself their faith tradition, Judaism, had to adjust and change so the purpose of the law would be fulfilled in other ways. Or you could say there's a sense in which the law had to change sometimes in order to stay the same, to fulfill the same purpose. And so the million-dollar question is obviously, well, how do, you, how do you do this? Like, when and how do you make these changes? 
especially with big issues like here, the, the, the question is an issue of gender dynamics and land. Like these are biggies. The first thing that they do here is, is turn to Moses, who acts as their mediator. So why would they do this? Well, Moses, I mean, you remember the story. Moses has years of training in cultivating his own sensitivity to God. And so his task is to take this before God and discern sort of the, the purpose of the law. What's it trying to accomplish? What's its intent? And is there a better way to embody that intent here in this situation? And if you've been with us this summer, you know, we've been noticing the way that the camp was organized kind of to represent this mobile land of Eden right there in the middle of the desert. And that the, around the, the Levites, around the tent, they were like the garden of Eden. And then the, the tent itself, like the, the tree of life. And so this whole wilderness story has been symbolically connected way back to, to the Genesis narrative in the, in the beginning. And so we might wonder here even, does Genesis have anything about males and females taking on responsibility as stewards over land? Which, of, of course, it does, right? There's the story of Adam and Eve. So how did God set things up? In Genesis, what was the original intent? Adam, which is the Hebrew word for humanity, and Eve, which is the Hebrew word for life, in that story are both chosen as stewards of creation. Both of them bear the image of God. Both reflect God's presence to the world. Both are told to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the land. Male and female, it says, let them rule over the land. So our origin story says male and female are equal and interdependent. But of course, that's not always the way the story gets told, right? It has been distorted into, I'm, I'm a Southern Baptist kid, okay, so there were rules about this that basically said just the opposite. In, in fact, I have, a, I have a bone to pick with the translators. I think our English translators or translations are just straight misleading in these passages. Can they make it sound like the opposite of what the Hebrew language actually says, which is tough because these things are foundational for gender roles that really have the force of law for a lot of Christians. And they exclude women and don't see them as equal participants in the kingdom. So real quick, I want to look at some of this language. And if you've never heard this before, like, stuff's about to happen, okay? I'm just <laughs> warning you. So you know, the verse, you know the verse about how it says it's not good for a man to be alone, so God creates a female or partner to be with him. What it says God creates in the Hebrew language is an, an azer konegdo, which the King James Version translates as a helpmeet. Darby's Bible calls it a helpmate. The NIV translates it as a helper suitable, from which we got suitable helpers, the female version of promise keepers. Anyone go to this? <laughs> so these translations imply we're so messed up from the church, aren't we? I mean, just like. So these translations imply that male is preeminent and female is subordinate, if not inferior. Just a bunch of azers. Problem is, that is not what azer means in the Hebrew language. An azer is a powerful deliverer in Hebrew. 
I mean, of the 21 times Azer appears in Scripture, 16 of those times it's talking about God, God's action, saving his people, delivering them from ruin. So calling it helper, I mean, maybe, it's, but it's not helper like daddy's little helper, you know. Eve is not, you might say, the assistant to the regional manager, you know. <laughs> Azer means powerful deliverer, rescuer, savior even. So Eve, which means life, delivers Adam, which means humanity, from his aloneness so they can both bear the image of God. So there is no subservience in the word Azer. Hel helper, I think, is too weak a word. And Azer is a powerful deliverer and rescuer. Connecto doesn't mean suitable. I mean, it, you have to really want to get there to get there. It, it's, it's not suitable as in like presentable, like having good manners, knowing her place. Connecto, it means an opposite that corresponds perfectly to the current thing. Literally, it means the other half of a thing, the other side, the missing piece of a thing. It's not complementary as in like complementarianism. He who has ears, let him hear, all right? <laughs> Eve is not an accessory to Adam's whole vibe, okay? Connecto connotes standing. That's one of its things, standing on their own two feet, face-to-face, toe-to-toe, facing the other as an equal, and, and because they're equal, reflecting back God's image. By opposing, sometimes resisting, not being the same, but somehow like staying present to him, facing him as equal. That's connecto. It's the half that makes the whole. It's an equal. And so this phrase, Azar connecto, does not mean helper suitable. I mean, gag me. That's it's, this is wrong. It means something like um, delivering opposite. Like, that's bad. That's, have your daughters be that. You know, the corresponding resistance that saves Ha'adam, the humanity. Someone like Adam, contending with him, wrestling with him, wrestling, um, um, reflecting back God's image, and thereby saving him, enabling him to be human as human was intended to be. I don't know about you, but like that is very different from what I was taught growing up. But it's kind of beautiful. Let me give you one more. I could do this all day, but we're just going to do one more. You were probably taught that Eve came from Adam's rib. Anybody get taught that? So the Hebrew word there is tzelah. I looked it up this week. It's used like 41 times in Scripture. No other time is it translated as rib because... That's not what Tzela means. That's not what it meant when Genesis was written. It came to mean that for some people after the fact. That translation was written later by a bunch of men who were doing a patriarchy thing. Tzela means one whole side of a thing. Not, it doesn't mean rib. It doesn't even mean side. It means like half. God didn't take one of Adam's ribs and make a woman. God split Adam in half and created two humans out of one that correspond, right? 
made of the same flesh and bone. That's what Adam says to her, right? You are flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, right? We're made of the same stuff. So females are not derivative of males any more than males are derivative of females. There's not a hint of subservience in Selah. They are equals. Okay, so the wisdom here embedded in the creation story isn't about women being created subordinate to men. It's not even really about strict boundaries for gender and sexuality. That's not the concern of that passage. The story is saying that humanity's role in the world is about imaging God and stewarding the land, stewarding creation. And participation in this is not tied to gender or maleness or family name. It's tied to relationships of mutuality and cooperation and love and inclusion. It's, it's as Desmond Tutu says, a person is a person through other persons. That's how this works. A solitary human can't image God. When, God, when there's just a solitary human, God says, this is not good. Only time God says that. Only when there's another is it good. Does it reflect the image of God? And this is not just male and female, you guys. This is all human relationships do this. Our humanity is expressed through relationships. And if one side is subjugated or excluded, then all of our humanity is diminished. And so this bias toward inclusion it stems from the very beginning of the story. And all of humanity was asked to steward the land and, and, and image God, and this is expressed for them socially. A person is a person through other persons. And so, now, jump back into our story for today. We're asking what should be done with these daughters, because strict, strict observance of the law will exclude them from this vocation from the land. And in Numbers, again, we've been doing this Genesis thing the whole time with this mobile land of Eden and mobile garden and tree. And this, this new generation is sometimes portrayed almost like a new Adam and Eve. And so it's really probably no coincidence that there's a story in Numbers with these kind of Eve-like characters asking, in a sense, is it only Adam who gets to rule this faithful land of promise? They're, they're pushing, asking about the role of women in possessing the land. Will they have equal share in the promise? Will they get to have dominion in this new creation that they're, they're going into? They get to steward it and till it and keep it. And what they decide is these religious rules that stand in the way of women's full participation in the promise should be done away with. And this is where is where God leads them. And also, at the same time, I think it's really significant that this reinterpretation happens during a time of generational transition. Let that sink in for a second. It's a changing of the guard moment, and they have to go back and kind of reinterpret some stuff. There will be new challenges. The culture's changed. Their questions have changed. They got to figure out how to be faithful to that original intention of the law, but in a brand new situation. And so this narrative, I think, really draws attention to the fact that God's commands are given to a specific context. And when the context changes, they need divine wisdom for how to be faithful to the original 
intent of the commands, but free to do so with fresh expressions, new inclusions and practices that allow them to embody God's intention for, for the world in this, this new context. This is a story about how the people of God are just constantly evolving their faith. And it's a story about how the older generation has this responsibility to hold a posture of openness toward these new alternative obediences. I remember going 10 rounds with some of the old church ladies in my congregation going up and growing up and they were like, there will not be a drum set in the sanctuary. That was the fight, right? And thankfully they relented because drums are fun. Um, <laughs> new expressions of God's faithfulness, right? New inclusions of those previously left out. And often it'll feel a bit scandalous, right? Because it's breaking some rules. And of course, there's an inherent danger in this kind of thing. I mean, how do we, how are you guys sure that I don't wind up being David Koresh, right? <laughs> Cult leaders or false teachers, you know, or those who almost um, worship the new and novel things, who make an idol out of change, out of being relevant, and those who are dismissive of our history. How do we protect? from this. Well, a person can only be person through other persons. So even leaders must submit themselves to the community itself. It's a principle of mutual submission. Be subject to one another. That's what Paul said. Go slowly. Be patient. Don't just pursue what is new and novel. Pursue what is wise. But in seasons of generational change, the old generation has to Lighten up. And if they refuse to remain open to new works of the Spirit, it disqualifies them from participating in, in the new work that God is doing. They become just like this old generation in the, in the wilderness. They were stuck, given old answers to new questions. Whatever, whatever the question was, their answer was, let's go back to Egypt. And, and so this is a warning for those who refused to change and grow. Faith evolves over time. It has to, or it dies. And if we become stuck in old paradigms, especially during seasons of generational change, we run the risk of perishing without ever seeing the promised land, without getting to see this new thing that God is doing in the world in this new context. And yeah, it's, it might feel a little scandalous, a bit out of control, and maybe it is. But just think how many times Jesus was scandalously accepting somebody his people were rejecting. Over and over and over. Jesus was a faithful Jew, by the way. Born to Jewish parents, raised in a Jewish home. He quoted Jewish scriptures, saw himself as acting within the Jewish story. He had a powerful ministry of teaching and healing mostly among the Jews. He gathered this little small band of Jewish followers, and he taught them a whole new way to be human with these fresh expressions and new scandalous inclusions and practices that allowed them to embody God's intention for the world within this new context of 
Jewish dispersion and Roman occupation. He gave them new habits. He gave them new commands. That's scandalous stuff that transformed the way they saw their own tradition. And those who refused to change, along with some really rich and powerful people who had good reason not to change, they had him killed on a Roman cross in an attempt to end his movement. And his followers thought, yeah, it's over. I mean, Messiahs win wars and rule people. They don't die on Roman crosses. But then he began to appear to them alive, raised from the dead. And so they continued to follow Jesus even after he died. And they did this without ever ceasing to see themselves as Jewish. They didn't think they were starting a new religion. They didn't call themselves Christians for quite a while, for centuries. They, They just believed that Jesus had given them this new manifestation of the Spirit of God, that through the Spirit of Christ, God was now present to them, living within them as persons, but mostly they saw it living within the community. And the Spirit played the same role for these Christians that Moses played for the children of Israel in the wilderness, this this role of mediator between the people and God. We don't have a Moses, but we still have a mediator. And so for these Christians, they, they saw the Spirit of Christ in that role. Their connection to God, like their Moses. It was kind of the a prophet, priest, and king, Moses kind of mediator. And, and so as they tried to organize their common life together in such a way that they would fulfill those intentions for humanity, bearing God's image, stewarding the world, cultivating wholeness and flourishing really shalom, they began to notice that strict observance of the law resulted in a lot of injustice and exclusion. And they, they became uncomfortable with it. Because Jesus, I mean, he welcomed people that his own tradition tended to exclude. The unclean, the sick, the immigrants, Roman collaborators, tax collectors, prostitutes, notorious sinners. And when strict observance of the law led to these exclusions and sometimes injustices, um, these Jewish followers of Christ just trusted that the spirit of Christ um, would be their Moses kind of mediator, guiding them toward fresh expressions of the reign and rule of God. There's this one famous example in in the New Testament um, where they convened like an all-church council in Jerusalem. Jews and Gentiles and Hellenized Jews and old, crusty, you know, like Hebrew Christians, a bunch of Gentiles came to them saying, you know this spirit thing that you always talk about? It's happening to us. We've received the spirit of Christ. We're following it. And it feels like we're becoming part of you, part of the body. So do we need to become Jews? Be circumcised? Follow Jewish law? And the council said no. I mean, we don't really get this because we, we don't, it's not our, our paradigm. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a more central symbol of what it meant to be Jewish than being circumcised and following Jewish law. But these faithful Jews, they're like, just forget about all that. If you're a Gentile, you don't have to convert to Judaism first. 
how did they come to this? Well, they, they look back at their own story, right? And they said, we think the Jewish story has always been moving in the direction of inclusion that Jesus really pushed us. The inclusion of all nations. And so they're like, just come, come join in the, in the Jewish tradition without those like idiosyncrasies. We can, faith, we can faithfully embody this tradition together with all of us together. And so these, these faithful Jewish Christ followers who would tell you that strict observance of the law defined them, defined their faith, their identity as the people of God, they just let go of that requirement. They're like, you don't have to be, become, you don't have to convert, be law-observing Jews to receive the Spirit of Christ. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but to this day, this is the space we occupy as Christians. We were invited into this tradition by Jewish Christians, a bunch of first century Jews who had received the spirit of Christ and just started inviting Gentiles to worship with them because of this bias toward inclusion that they saw as being rooted deep down in their tradition. And from that act of hospitality and reinterpretation and even, you could say, violation of the law, the entire Christian tradition was, was born. And from that day, I mean, they, they believe the ongoing work of figuring out what faithfulness looks like in any context is this ongoing work that never ends. Faithfulness will look different in different contexts, depending on the cultural norms and just a million tiny things. And God is less invested in just preserving traditions as they are and more invested in the inclusion of everyone, especially outsiders, into this new community, this new humanity with God's spirit living in their hearts and especially in the community itself, the spirit of Christ acting as their Moses-type mediator, they just kept faithing it forward in the new terrain of new cultures and new contexts and every new place, new age, the spirit moved. And they taught that, that literally anyone can submit themselves to, to Christ and, and cultivate this profound sensitivity to the presence of God, the Spirit of Christ, alive and unleashed on the loose in the world. And, and that one of the defining characteristics of this Spirit is that it always seems to be moving toward the inclusion of those for whom strict observance of religious dogma leaves out. And really the way Jesus seemed to want to judge, like the final arbiter about who's in and out and what's right and what's wrong, um, which ones of these new obediences or new um, alternative ways of trying to embody God to the world are good and which are not so good. He said the way to evaluate is look at how it impacts the least of these. That was it for him. How does it impact those on the margins who suffer? So with that, that question at the forefront, the Spirit 
guided the church through almost every era toward this careful consideration of their moral and ethical and religious stances regarding like everyday contextual, social, political, economic issues in every time, in every place with the spirit of Christ as their Moses type mediator, Christians, faithful Christians typically prioritize the inclusion of outsiders. And they just figured out who everybody was scapegoating and they would just go live in solidarity with them standing with those on the margins in any particular culture without chucking the tradition right they just made space for these strange others and and found new strange new obediences the hebrew prophets actually talked about this about what this would be like when it started to happen when messiah showed up in the world and God finally started to hold sway in a people. It was articulated really well by Ezekiel um, in a really beautiful way. And I want to close with this. He said, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. And I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. And I will remove from them their heart of stone give them a heart of flesh and then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws and they will be my people and I will be their God. That original promise will come true. This, this is what we're promised. This is the tradition we're part of. It says what God is trying to do is give us a new heart, a new spirit to remove our heart of stone, you know, and give us a heart of flesh, not just as persons, but as a people, as a group. Hearts that God can touch and move. Hearts that beat in time with what the Spirit is doing in the world. Which seems to be always moving toward those that religious dogma wants to exclude. This bias toward inclusion and this deep kind of humility and confession of all our own brokenness that's a, by the way it, the big difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh is can we tell the truth we get to be part of this this heart of flesh part of this what is God going to do in this new land in this new context every day if we remain open to the spirit if we remain um, living Really, it's two things. Cultivating this sensitivity to the Spirit, the Moses-type mediator that guides us, and living in, in solidarity with those who are left out. If this is who we are, if this is what we become, then, then we're always kind of poised on the edge of the adventure of let's go into the land and see what, see what happens. Let's pray. It's so fun, God, to um, just imagine ourselves in these stories and to remember that our faith is not supposed to be just a bunch of stodgy beliefs and church people who are, you know, content to just be right about everything. 
Our faith is not just to be analyzed. It's supposed to be lived and embodied in the world and that this is a great adventure. It's worthy of our lives. And it's not a hierarchy. Everybody gets to play a part. And so I pray that you would cultivate in all of us a sensitivity to your spirit that you would speak to us, that you would move us, give us hearts of flesh, that you can touch and move hearts that beat in time with your heart, God. And that we would be brave because entering new lands, it it takes courage. Give us courage. We love you. We're grateful for this this story. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion is we'll just be released row by row, and you come forward, and you take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup, and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond by saying, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. We do this because on Jesus's last night with his people, he redefined one of their biggest um, ceremonies, the Passover. And he, in the midst of that um, old kind of Jewish ceremony, he had them all take a piece of the bread and the cup and, and receive it, the same piece. And he said, I'm, I'm changing the meaning of the symbols. This, this bread is like my body. This, this wine is like my blood, my life. He said, whenever you gather from here on out, take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world and be my hands and feet. He said, every time you gather, do this symbol. And so this is why we receive communion. I know it's kind of a weird thing to do, but it's what we do. And it's also why we set no limits on who comes to the table. Like anybody, any ragamuffins who call on the name of Christ can join us in this meal. So first, let's all pray a blessing on the table. God, we do ask um, you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?